from socialservice.sg, I'm Jingyao. In a commentary on climate governance for academia.sg, Felicia Teo made the case that the impact of climate change is not equal and that, as a consequence, identifying and addressing this risk should be up for debate and public scrutiny. This was important, she added, so as to address differences in norms and values in Singapore. Her research was based on 10 interviewees from six climate groups who invited her to elaborate how the Singaporean state and climate groups frame climate change, as well as the differences in these framings. In addition, what should we expect from the state and the climate groups in the future? Felicia is a PhD student in sociology at New York University. Right. So, Belisha, could you tell me more about yourself and your research interests? Okay. Hi. So, I'm Belisha. I'm a first-year PhD student at the Department of Sociology in NYU. And my research interests are mainly around like the sociology of climate change, but also environmental sociology more broadly, and also looking at social movements. And before we talk about your most recent article for academia.sg, right, which we will link in the show notes, what got you interested in the research of, I mean, in general, environmental sociology, the researching of climate change and social movements? Yeah, I think for the interest in climate change was kind of almost non-optional for me because like for people who maybe grew up in my generation, like climate change is something that has always been there, always like hovering in the background that like this is a massive threat that's going to be in your future. And so when I started to think more about it, it, it just became something that I couldn't really let go of. Yeah, and so that's why my, my research teachers kind of developed towards environmental sociology and then focusing on climate change. But I think the, the social movement side of it was actually kind of pure luck and like pure good timing because it just so happened that the year that I was doing my honours thesis was like 2019, right? And then that was the year where SG Climate Rally started. And that was the year that they had the first rally, like the very first physical rally around climate change in Singapore. And that was also the year where we had all the Fridays for Future school strikes around the world. So it was just like pure good timing that everything happened in the year that I did my honours thesis. I would say good timing, but also good timing requires incisive analysis. So, which is why I was excited to reach out because your article is titled Science-Based Does Not Mean Value Neutral, Making the Case for Broader Public Participation and Climate Governance, right? So you make the argument that debates over climate action need to be widened to allow for citizens to talk about morals and values. So give us a sense maybe for a start how the Singapore state or Singapore government has thus far framed climate change. Right. So I think my approach in the article was that in order to understand how these climate groups are thinking about and responding to climate change, you first have to understand how the government is making sense of it. Right. So I think in recent years, there has been quite a shift in the sense that climate change is now like nationally recognized as a threat, which is quite a change from like before 2019, where it was like comparatively very quiet, not a lot of attention being paid to climate change. And then until we had the National Day Rally where suddenly like Lee Long identifies climate change as an existential threat for Singapore. And after that, it's like, it's really shot to prominence. But I think the way that climate change is thought about, like the dominant state framing of it is they're very much like tied together with economic growth, right? So there's this assumption that you have to balance both 
economic growth and environmental protection. And beyond that, it's also this idea that these two can kind of like supplement each other, right? That by focusing on environmental technology, we can like boost economic growth even more. So this is actually, and there's a theory for it in environmental sociology, which is like the ecological modernization theory, right? And it's the assumption that like free market forces are what is going to help us overcome all these various environmental problems that we have through like developing new technology and new green products, that sort of thing. So in Singapore, we have like a slightly different variant of this ecological modernization theory, where rather than purely free market forces directing this change, it's actually the state that plays a very central role in pushing this kind of like change forward. So of course, like this focus on having a strong economy is important, right? I'm not going to deny that. But the issue that comes about when your economic and environmental goals are like this tightly intertwined is that you wind up with very narrow ways of understanding environmental protection and also very narrow ways of understanding climate change and the kinds of like action that you can take. And so we see this in how a lot of state policy right now is focused towards things like improving energy efficiency right in, in all our industries. And those things do work in the short term because like actually our carbon emissions, which is a separate thing from greenhouse gas emissions, like our carbon emissions have actually decreased over the past four years. But whether or not like that kind of decrease can keep going in the long term is, is another issue. And this, this whole argument about ecological modernization in Singapore is actually not my argument. This is a work by Catherine Wong, who I think is a research fellow at NUS now. But as part of the research that I did, I was also looking through like newspaper reports, government speeches after she wrote the article. And I can confirm that this framing has not changed at all since then. Belisha mentioned Dr. Catherine Wong, a research fellow at the National University of Singapore. Dr. Wong is a sociologist who specializes in energy and climate change policy. And in addition, citing directly from her research profile website, studies how cultural, ideological, and social network factors influence risk perception and risk governance. In thinking about the framing and holding that in mind, that state-dominant framing, you also argue, then runs up against how climate groups frame climate change, right? So climate groups, I quote from the article, hold different value systems and framings of morality and justice. They were concerned not only with their own material well-being and security, but were fueled by values such as other-centeredness and a sense of fairness, and did not feel that these framings were met by current policies. So Maybe before we dive into it, tell us more about the 10 interviews you conducted and how these climate groups framed climate change. Yeah, so these interviews I did in 2019 and then 2020 before the pandemic hit, right? And I was speaking to members of climate groups who were active at the time and trying to make sense of like, how did they think about climate change and how did they think about climate change in relation to how the government was framing it? And I think it was a mixture of two answers, like overwhelmingly, the answer that I got from all of them was that they were doing this not just because climate change was a threat to them, but it was also like a moral issue, right? So on the one hand, you have my, my respondents would recognize that like climate change brings about threats to them in the form of like sea level rise, temperatures are going to increase in Singapore, which is just going to be so miserable <laughs> for everyone, right? And then with increasing temperatures, you have more things like dengue as well. And then also concerns over food security in Singapore, right? Since we are so dependent on food production in other places to meet our needs here. So 
on the one hand, there, there is that recognition that climate change is a threat to them. But then there's also that recognition that because they live in Singapore and because Singapore is such developed, well-to-do country and because largely these, my respondents are also occupy like more privileged positions, there's a recognition that things might be more uncomfortable for them, but that doesn't mean that they can't make it through this, this time. But the reason why they felt the need to take action was also because they recognised that this doesn't hold true for everyone. Even within Singapore, you have much less privileged groups who are going to feel the impact much worse than privileged people like us and also countries outside of Singapore as well that don't have that kind of resources to like raise, like reclaim more land and like build seawalls. So that was the first dreaming, like that it's a moral issue of caring for other people like beyond themselves. And then the other, the other thing that came up a lot was also this question of responsibility for the climate crisis. So if you look across newspaper reports and government speeches, the number that keeps coming up is 0.11%, which is Singapore's share of global emissions. And, and the argument there is that 0.11% is really small. And so there's not much that Singapore can do right, to mitigate this crisis. But the thing about that figure is that it's to do with how the IPCC calculates emissions per country, right? And this doesn't count what we call like international bunkers, which is like marine and aviation bunker fuel. And so for my respondents, one thing that kept coming up was how Singapore is a petrochemical hub, we're the largest petrochemical hub in Asia, but also a marine and aviation hub. And so Singapore is very much built through the use of fossil fuels, right? We've benefited greatly through through this. And so because we are complicit in producing fuels that other, other actors, other countries can use, and because we've benefited so much from it, we also have a responsibility to do more in relation to that. So I think how that ties into like the main argument that I make in the article is that when you talk about what we should do in relation to climate change and what kinds of actions we should be taking, it's not just enough to say like, oh, we're listening to the science or like all our solutions are science-based, right? Which is also something that has come up in how the Singaporean government talks about climate change. And to be fair, like it sounds good. And that has been the core that has been coming up, right? That, that governments around the world need to be listening to the science. But I feel that it has to go beyond just listening to the science because underlying all these climate policies and underlying these solutions are actually propositions, right? about that are not just time space, but these are to do with values and morals and what are the things that we value and the kinds of world that we want to live in in the future. So science as, a, as an institution has a lot of authority. And so it's easy to appeal to that and say that what we're doing is right because the science says so. But to saying that can hide the fact that these decisions cannot just be made through science, right? So science is kind of like, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient for making decisions. A common factoid is that while Singapore contributes 0.11% of global emissions, the country ranks very high in terms of emission per capita. Also, Valesha mentioned the IPCC, or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The body was formed in 1988 to provide scientific information on human-induced climate change and its risks. And I guess someone will also say that being science-based is a, is a low bar as well. Like it's a pretty low bar that you have to achieve, right? I mean, that's, that's something that 
everyone should already accept. That's not something that should be like, it's like an outstanding kind of achievement, right? And then in this case, in having worked with some of these youth groups and some of the groups in the, in the space as well, there's also this sincerity in reaching out to the government because there's the recognition that the government, in, especially in Singapore, might have an outsized influence in policies and how policies are designed. So in your article, you found that climate groups were skeptical or were frustrated with government interactions, right? So without being specific about the experiences to protect, you know, privacy and confidentiality, what's been the general experience through the participation in public feedback exercises such as the emissions consultations with the NCCS or the National Climate Change Secretariat? Yeah, so the general sense that I got from them is that the government is is willing to listen, which I think is, is an improvement, right? But whether or not anything happens beyond the listening is completely out of like civil society groups control. So some of my respondents would tell me about how, you know, they would get invited to close door meetings with ministers or they would be invited to take part in feedback sessions by different ministries. But the feedback session is really just a feedback session. So whether they receive an answer to the questions that they ask, whether any action is taken up based on their feedback, they have no control over. So it's still a very one-way communication system. But I think... Credit where credit is due. I think we see the government trying to open up a little bit more, right? Especially with this whole thing about Singapore Together exercise that is hopefully still going to go on despite the leadership change. <laughs> yeah, but for example, so the NCCS consultation on, on our emission strategy or the Dover Forest con- consultation, for example, these were initially, I think, organized to like run on for one month where people could like email in their submissions. But after I think after there was so much feedback, like both ministries chose to like extend the feedback period, which is which is quite encouraging, I think. But it also brings us to the question of how these consultations are being carried out is quite important as well. And whether or not the grounds for participation, like whether or not those grounds are equal, is also like we also need to look at that, right? So for example, if we look at the NCCS emissions consultation, the way that it was organized was that you could literally just send in an email to NCCS. And in a way that's very open, you can like write whatever you want in an email and then send it in. But they also published a set of guidelines that people could use to kind of frame the answers to the NCCS if they wanted to. And those guidelines were quite specific in terms of like framing what kinds of actions were like plausible, how people should be thinking about climate change. So for example, I think some of the questions were like, would you be willing to pay more for goods that came from a business that's reducing its emissions? Or how much more in percentage would you be willing to pay for energy that comes from a renewable source? And like from, from the onset, that already kind of that's already an assumption about how the world should work, right? That's already an assumption that the costs must be passed on to consumers. And then the NCCS, after they received all the responses, they published it in a document, which is also also quite new, right? That hasn't happened before. But it also means that the NCCS kind of gets the final say in what comes out of this consultation session. So in response to this consultation session, this group called Speak for Climate was actually formed. And they did like amazing work. They came up with a website that had like their own templates that people could use and like their own talking points that were that had like different framings of climate change compared to the NCCS documents. So I think that's a fantastic example of what civil society groups can do. So I think yeah, it's what we have now is promising, but we can afford to widen participation much more, right? I think there's still a very 
narrow understanding of what it means to take part in politics for historical reasons. <laughs> now, I was going to say, you're touching on two kind of important points that we've seen parallels, right? Number one, you're alluding to the importance of, it's not just about whether there is participation or engagement, but the modality through which engagement and participation happens. And I'm thinking back when I participated in 2013 in the our Singapore conversation process and also in the, there was something called the Committee to Strengthen National Service and the alludes, and there's a bit of parallel to what you said, right? Because the committee was to strengthen NS, but there was no question as to, do we even want NS in the first place? I mean, yes, that is a given for a lot of people, but maybe the certain assumptions of sacred cows, we want to kind of challenge it. Maybe you might not accept it, but the modality or the framing of the issue matters. And that's something you alluded to. I think the second point which you are touching on is like broadening the base for participation. And this is to the benefit, I think, not just of the government, but to the civil uh, society groups as well, because you want a broader base of uh, mass participation. And that kind of leads me to ending with a focus on the two parties we've been focusing on, on which you've been talking about, the state and the climate groups. So what do you expect from the state? Or put otherwise or frame differently, how or and what can the state do better to talk about and include different framings and modalities? And how plausible do you think that is, given what you said about the history of, of individuals being a bit apprehensive or being a bit reticent in sharing? Okay, I'm quite an idealistic person. So... I try to be optimistic in how I in what I imagine the future looking like, right? I hope it's not too much of a stretch to imagine like a more vibrant ecosystem of like different ideas and different perspectives that, that can be brought in. Although, like yes, I'm optimistic, but I think alongside this promise that we've seen towards greater openness from the government, we've also seen some very like heavy-handed decisions that they've made, like the the PMD ban in 2019 and then the petrol hike, which I'm not saying that these things were necessary, but the PMD ban was literally overnight and then it hits people who are already in very precarious positions. It hits them the hardest. So I think that like other countries have managed to conduct these kinds of more participatory exercises. So for example, in 2016, Ireland had like a citizens assembly, right? And then they would have assemblies over five different topics with like 99 randomly selected citizens who to participate in this. And then they also opened up like digital spaces for people to submit their responses. And when we think about like participation, I, it doesn't necessarily have to be at the nationwide level as well. I think it, it can get quite overwhelming to think about it on that scale. So places like Australia, for example, they've had assemblies on like state levels or even like small little town levels. So I think thinking of different kinds of forums and different skills to kind of build up that capacity to, to think about these things and to participate in these things is, is important and could be a way forward. We've previously referenced the patrol duty hike announced by the Singapore government in budget 2021 to ostensibly combat climate change. Separately, PMD refers to personal mobility devices, and in 2019, users of these devices were banned from riding on footpaths. The ban was especially opposed by foot delivery riders and those who use PMDs for their day-to-day -day transportation. In this case, the second group would be the climate groups themselves, and I think we want to end on this. And I'm interested in this as well because I do some research on, on youth activism and advocacy, and you know, different climate groups have shared visions and framings, but they're not homogeneous, right? They have different interests and all these things. So based on your research, what were the points of differences or disagreements when framing climate change between these groups? That's first. And then second, 
does the sample trend towards younger Singaporeans who are involved and but do we see older Singaporeans or, or other Singaporeans who are involved in this space as well? Yeah, I think the climate groups are definitely not homogenous, but I think that's also a good thing, right? So all of them obviously share a similar framing in that climate change is something that we should care about and that there's a moral imperative to act. But I think where I see the most points of difference is in like their theories of change, right? How how they want to bring about the change and how forceful they want to be in their messaging and what kinds of relationships they want with the government. And so you have different groups on like different points in that in that spectrum, which again, I don't think it's a bad thing because then that in that way you have a more broader idea of what climate change and climate action could look like, right? And then you can have different kinds of climate action that can appeal to different types of people. And I think that there is enough space in Singapore to accommodate these, these different viewpoints. So on your second question about younger Singaporeans, it does tend towards younger people. <laughs> yeah, although there are like more slightly older, more middle-aged folks as well. And I guess that's, it's both typical of these kinds of causes, but also just like, like I mentioned right at the start, right? That like, it's the younger people who have really grown up with this hanging over their heads. And so it, it makes sense that for now, this would be youth dominated. But I also think it'll be interesting to see how the people in this group grow and how this work is going to grow with them. Because I don't imagine that like, once they graduate from university, they're just going to stop caring, right? Because it's not like climate change is going to go away anytime soon yeah so I do hope they'll keep growing and I do hope that we'll different groups will think of different ways to to bring in different age groups as well no thank you and on that note I will add and I hope that and I'm pretty sure you will do this which is continue this long-term longitudinal research and, and, and finding out how these groups evolve over time and how youths continue to be involved in these forms of activism and advocacy thank you very much for the article thanks for being with us and I look forward to your future research and hoping that we'll get to work together and then possibly do research together in the future as well yeah thank you for having me thank you mm-hmm. 